1: You're it's listening so
0: too to a Mamma Mia podcast. From Mamma Mia, hi, I'm Claire Murphy. Welcome to The Quickie, getting you up to speed daily. What is Sharia law? When the Taliban recently took power again in Afghanistan, there were fears the country would return to the harsh Islamic laws once seen when they ruled back in the 1990s and early 2000s. But what exactly does Sharia law mean and why do some say the Taliban's version isn't a true reflection of it? Today, we look at Sharia law, its interpretations and what that means for the women and girls of Afghanistan. Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, In their very first press conference after seizing power in the Afghan capital of Kabul, the Taliban promised they would rule differently this time.
1: The Islamic Emirate is committed to the right of women within the framework of Sharia. Our women have the same rights. They're going to be working shoulder to shoulder with us. We want to assure the international community there will be no discrimination against women, but, of course, within our religious framework.
0: The last time they were in charge in the late 90s, before the US-led invasion, the Taliban imposed a strict form of Sharia, or Islamic law, which largely confined women to their homes, banned TV and music, and held public executions. Sharia, which roughly translates as the clear, well-trodden path to water, refers to Islam's legal and moral system and is derived from the Quran, Islam's holy book, The deeds and sayings of the Prophet Muhammad, who established the first Islamic community in Medina in Saudi Arabia in 622 CE, after fleeing from Mecca. His body remains entombed in the city. Sharia law informs every aspect of daily life for a Muslim, from religion to family life to financial and business dealings, regulating all human actions into five categories, obligatory, recommended, permitted, disliked or forbidden. For nearly 1,000 years, Sharia was the most sophisticated and developed legal system in the world, unifying diverse Muslim people spread over vast racial, cultural, religious and geographic spaces. Those laws, however, are open to different interpretations, just as the teachings of the Bible can be interpreted in different ways, from fundamentalist Christians who believe the Bible is the true voice of God and that the world was literally created in six days, to conservative Christians who follow the Bible's teachings but don't necessarily see it as the voice of God, rather written by humans inspired by God. Liberal Christians might interpret the Bible to fit modern society, helping them understand God, but not that the stories inside need to be taken literally. That's why some will be able to have clarity on things such as gay marriage, for example, but others reject it as being something against the teachings of the Bible. Even though Sharia law was designed to nurture humanity, promote good, benefit human beings and protect them from evil... Western society tends to fixate on the punishments and draconian social views associated with the criminal laws of Sharia. Crimes against Sharia fall into three categories. The least serious, taziyah, refers to crimes that don't have a punishment specified in the Quran, and so can be determined at the discretion of a judge. Examples could include eating a prohibited food, fraud or traffic offences. Qisas refers to the Islamic principle of an eye for an eye, and includes crimes of murder and battery. While the majority of Muslim communities see it as an analogy only, under stricter interpretations of the law, it's used to justify the death penalty and other serious physical punishments where the victim, or the heirs of the victim, can be granted the right to take the life of the person who killed someone in their family. They also have the option to receive monetary compensation, or they can grant a pardon to the perpetrator. Hudud is the most severe and refers to a crime against God. Offences can include adultery, homosexuality, consuming alcohol and robbery, with the punishments ranging from the amputation of hands and feet to crucifixion and death by stoning. Once again, most practising Muslims take their cues about their faith from sharia, but most don't think of it as a substitute for civil laws and certainly don't support severe corporal punishment. But interpretation of Islamic law is complex and can look very different from country to country and can be reinterpreted depending on the situation at the time. For example, last year, Saudi Arabia announced major reforms, including allowing unmarried couples to live together, decriminalising alcohol and putting an end to lenient punishments for so-called honour killings. Brunei, on the other hand, has gone in the other direction. In 2019, they brought in harsh new Sharia laws, including death by stoning for adultery and gay sex. The manner of Sharia's application in modern times continues to be hotly contested between conservative and liberal Muslims. There's a verse in the Quran that says, Men are the protectors of women. But many contemporary scholars dispute the notion that this suggests that women must obey men, or that women are inferior. While it's true that many majority Muslim societies have laws that treat women unfairly, many of these laws, like Saudi Arabia's former ban on female drivers, have no basis in Sharia. The Taliban's interpretation of Sharia law has of course proven to be violent and oppressive. Under their first rule in the 1990s, women had almost no rights until the US-led invasion in 2001, which saw the Taliban overthrown. But even though the Taliban have promised to be more inclusive this time around, we're already hearing reports of women being married off as sex slaves to Taliban fighters and having their access to employment and education reduced or removed. Dr. Rahane Ismail is a senior lecturer in Middle Eastern and Islamic Studies at the Australian National University's Centre for Arab and Islamic Studies. Doctor, can we go back to the start? What was the Prophet Muhammad's goal with the original form of Sharia law?
1: The Prophet established a political community when he migrated from Mecca to Medina. And at that time, he governed a community of roughly around 30,000 people. And as part of his strategy to govern, he introduced a legal system that would help him govern the community. So basically moving away from tribal practices and instituting a more sophisticated form of governance. So that's why the Prophet introduced the Constitution of Medina, for example, and the Constitution of Medina is designed to actually govern this broader community. The Constitution draws from the Quran, the principles or the Quran as a source of Islamic law, and gradually it was more verses were revealed to Muhammad to help him govern this community. So one could argue that the Islamic law that we understand today, or some of the jurisprudential rulings as we understand today, did not originate from the Prophet himself. Because, you know, Muslim communities later developed as well and expanded, and different caliphs and different rulers added to this legal system that we understand today in the broader Muslim community.
0: Was that what's been the big change? Because throughout history, Sharia was once considered one of the most sophisticated and developed legal systems in the world. Now it's viewed very differently. Is that because so many people have interpreted it differently, changed things to fit their community? Is that why it's changed so much over the years?
1: Absolutely. When we look at different Islamic empires, the rulers adopted different practices. And of course, they wanted to retain, you know, the overall Islamic principles, but they expanded. And when you expand, you also encounter local communities. When you encounter local communities, you also retain some aspects of local governance or local systems. And that's what happened during the Umayyad period. For example, this is the empire that ruled after the four rightly guided caliphs. And this empire actually borrowed from the Persians, borrowed from the Byzantines to actually govern the expanding Islamic empire. So you could argue that with the evolution of Muslim societies, different rulers, different dynasties adopted the Islamic principles, but also tried to adapt that to the changing circumstances of their communities. So fast forward, we have... Muslim world today, here we're looking at the development of nation states, the colonial period before that, and one could argue that what we understand as Islamic law today is complex. It's very much dependent on the context of these countries, the circumstances that these countries have dealt with. And when it comes to Sharia law, it depends on where you go to understand the interpretations of Sharia law and how Sharia law has actually changed throughout the course of history, but also how it's practiced in various parts of the Muslim world today.
0: Throughout all of those changes and influences over time, Have women ever had any say or input into the construction of Sharia law in any of its forms?
1: Muslim historians would generally agree that during the Prophet's time, women had more rights. They participated in the political process, women in the Prophet's families and his companions played an important role in shaping the community in Medina, but even the community in Mecca During some of the caliphates as well, particularly the four rightly guided caliphs, they appointed women to prominent positions, but gradually positions were degraded in terms of their contributions. Women were then relegated. And that's because of the patriarchal nature of the community at that time. So it was not that Islam never really empowered women, but I think the patriarchal nature of the community. But even when Islam expanded, Islam absorbed areas where patriarchal practices were retained. And according to historians as well, during the Ottoman period, for example, when they established schools, women were not given positions where they were in a teaching formally or Islamic practices formally. So, again, that played an important role in the relegation of women. So, today, I think it's very difficult to say that Sharia law empowers women, and that's because of the interpretations that came later. In contemporary Muslim societies, again, it depends on where you go as well. It depends on the interpretations of Islam, interpretations of Sharia. So, for example, the issue of polygamy, and I think people look at polygamy as one example of how the Qur'an can be interpreted differently. So, in the Qur'an, it states that you can take up to two, three, four wives. However, if you fear that you cannot be just, just marry one. So, according to classical jurists, during the Abbasid period, or even before that, men are entitled to take up to four wives. However, contemporary Muslim jurists argue that, wait a minute, you have to be very careful. Let's look at the word just here. So, if you fear that you cannot be just, just marry one. So, let's look at the word just. What does it mean? These jurists argue that just means that you have to be psychologically just, you have to be financially just, you have to be emotionally just. And these jurists argue that the fact that it's impossible to be emotionally just, to be psychologically just, to be financially just, means that it's impossible to actually allow polygamy. And the Quran actually promotes monogamy, according to some of these jurists. So based on this interpretation, some communities decide not to accept polygamy as a legitimate practice. Other communities argue that it depends on the women. If they want to be in a polygamous marriage and relationships, then by all means, they can opt for that. So many Muslim-majority countries today impose restrictions. For example, in Malaysia, you have to gain the permission of the first wife before taking a second wife. And it has to go through a proper court process. And often, first wives don't want to be in a polygamous marriage, and they say that no, I'm filing for divorce because I don't want to be in a polygamous marriage. And other women, perhaps due to pressure, but it could also be because they want to be in a polygamous marriage, accept that arrangement. So it's more complex when we talk about how Islamic law, or Sharia law, is actually practiced because it depends on the interpretations.
0: What does it feel like when Australians who probably don't really know the complex history of Sharia law talk about it, Australian politicians or commentators, and it's very well demonised. Obviously, the Taliban's version of Sharia law looks pretty monstrous for women and girls. But how does it feel to hear the discussions around Australia about Sharia law, considering the very little knowledge that most people have about it?
1: Yeah, it can be quite frustrating, and the reason it is frustrating, as you've mentioned and correctly mentioned as well, Sharia laws demonise, demonized and therefore Muslim communities are associated with the demonization of Sharia law, and that contributes to the perception that Muslims are regressive, backwards, and therefore don't have any place in modern societies. I've been in Australia since 2007, and we keep revisiting Sharia law. So 2014, yes, it was a big thing. And we started talking about Sharia law again when ISIS captured Mosul. And now with the Taliban, we're still talking about Sharia law. And I wouldn't be surprised some politicians will increasingly start demonizing Sharia law again. And often when politicians talk about Sharia law, they focus so much on Islamic criminal law. But Sharia can be roughly divided into four categories. The first category, we're looking at laws concerning personal acts of worship. So personal acts of worship include... Praying, fasting, giving to charity. For some women, it's wearing the hijab. That's their obligation. For other women, the hijab is not really a religious obligation. So again, even when it comes to what Muslim women wear, we have so many interpretations as well in terms of what is acceptable, what is obligatory, and what is encouraged in Muslim societies. The second category deals with civil law. And the third category deals with personal status laws, dealing with family matters. And the fourth category, which is the most controversial category, is Islamic criminal law, known as hudud. For theft, the punishment is amputation, apostasy, if you fail to repent, you face execution. If you drink alcohol, the punishment is flogging. So the focus is often on Islamic criminal law when we talk about Sharia law today. But it's not really practised in the overwhelming majority Muslim countries.
0: According to the 2016 census, there are more than 600,000 Australians who identify as Muslim. Many live, according to Sharia, in their day-to-day lives. And that doesn't mean they're living in defiance of the Australian laws or seeking to set up a parallel legal system. They're simply living by a moral and ethical code as part of their religious beliefs. As we've just heard, Sharia law is complex and its interpretations wide and varying. It's not as simple as saying it's bad or good. So like many religious or cultural beliefs, we need to be careful about demonising one part of that system, especially when we may have little knowledge about how the rest of it functions. That's the quickie for today. This episode was produced by myself, Claire Murphy, and our executive producer, Siobhan Moran McFarlane, with audio production by Ian Camilleri. And if you want to send us some feedback on the show, it's really easy. Just rate and review us in your favourite podcast app. Mama Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of the land we have recorded this podcast on, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation.